Well, in our study of John, we have come to the end of Jesus' public ministry. After expressing his willingness to follow through on the plan that had been in place since Eden and receiving verbal affirmation from a voice out of heaven that he was about to do something that would bring glory to God, the Jewish multitude expressed grave doubts about his identity. And Jesus responded to their unbelief by saying, For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of light. After saying that, John notes, these things Jesus spoke, and he departed and hid himself from them. John continues by then commenting on the blindness of the people, having already illustrated how their previously held beliefs had blinded them, he notes their hardness of heart and desire for the approval of men. But then he writes, and Jesus cried out and said. Now that that surprises us, and it raises a question. When did Jesus say this? And to whom? You know, since John had already noted that Jesus had departed and hid himself, the suggestion has been made that this was actually John merely elaborating on what Jesus had said. Others rightfully insist that Jesus did say these words, but that he had done so earlier. And John simply inserted them here for effect. The most straightforward understanding of the text, however, is that Jesus is getting in the last words as he departs. That this is his parting shot as he walks away. And if that's true, these are the final words of Jesus' public ministry. Now, for the next two days, he will teach the disciples in private, trying to prepare them for what's to come. After his arrest, he will briefly answer some questions posed to him by the authorities. While on the cross, he will utter what is often referred to as his seven words from the cross. And after the resurrection, he will talk with the disciples and commission them. But these are apparently the final words of his public ministry. And what powerful words they are. In essence, he says, this is what I have done. Now, it's up to you. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. He who believes in me does not believe in me. That, that doesn't make sense to us. 
But in the language Jesus used, it made perfect sense. Because when used in certain contexts, the word translated not can actually mean not only. It was used that way back in verse 30 when Jesus said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. And as we noted then, he wasn't saying the voice had not come for his sake, only that it had not come only for his sake, but for their sake as well. What Jesus is saying here is that those who believe in him believe not only in him, but also in the one who sent him. Jesus is the messenger sent by God to man. So to believe in Jesus is to believe in God. But Jesus was more than a messenger. He went on to say, he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. Now that that too surprises us. A messenger can't say that. But Jesus was more than a messenger. He's God. And seeing him is seeing God in the flesh. In effect, he's saying, I am God, come to earth. I came to show you God, so to see me is to see God. And he came to reveal God to us in ways we could understand. You can better understand the love of God because you watched me care for people, touch them, heal them. You understand the patience of God because I was patient with you and taught you the same things over and over again when you didn't understand them or put them into practice. You understand judgment and the wrath of God because you saw me cleansing the temple. I came to earth so you could see God. You know, the Apostle Paul confirmed this to be the case when he wrote that Jesus was the image of the invisible God, that he was, in fact, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, and that in him dwelt the fullness of God. Jesus was God in the flesh, nothing less. And his parting cry to the multitude was, I have shown you the Father, and I have brought you light. I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. Isaiah had prophesied the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Jesus was that light, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And the father of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, acknowledged as much when he said of his son, And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness 
and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That light was Jesus. He was the sunrise from on high. God's Son brought to earth the Son from on high. He came to bring us the light needed to walk through life without fear, even through the valley of the shadow of death. He came to give us the knowledge of salvation, to make possible the forgiveness of our sins. He came to guide our feet into the way of peace, peace with each other and peace with God. He came to dispel all the fear and darkness of life, life in a fallen and sinful world. But not everyone welcomed the light. For as Jesus said in John 3, 19 through 21, and this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Evil men are like cockroaches when it comes to light. They scatter when it's turned on, desperate to find a dark place to hide. And sometimes the cockroaches even infest the church. I wasn't sure whether to share this with you or not, but hey. When I was a youth minister, 50-some years ago at Bun Park, we had a lot of activities with the kids. And the church was an old church. The fellowship hall was in the back. The place looked nice. It looked clean. But I can still remember going back in the fellowship hall at night and flipping on the light. And yes, there were cockroaches everywhere. It became a game for the kids. We would go back there in the dark and flip on the light and see how many we could squish. <laughs> I know, that's disgusting. <laughs> but that's a picture picture of evil that hides and comes out in the dark. When the light comes on, evil men scatter and try to find places to hide. Evil men love the darkness rather than the light, and Jesus knew they would. Nevertheless, he brought light to the world. And that light was an offer of salvation. He went on. And if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word that I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Jesus 
was a realist. He knew not everyone would do what he said. But he didn't come to judge the world, not then. He didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. And he made that very clear to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. His purpose in coming was to save us. He came to pay the penalty for our sins, to offer himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. He came to go to the cross. He came to die so we wouldn't have to, at least not eternally. And even if those for whom he came might reject him and refuse to believe in him, he hadn't come to judge them. He wasn't going to call down fire from heaven and fry them. That's what James and John wanted Jesus to do when the Samaritans rejected him. But he hadn't come to do that. He had come to save, not to destroy. To reject his offer, however, will ultimately bring judgment upon ourselves. Because refusal to accept salvation now will condemn us on the last day. But even then, it won't be God who condemns us. We will have condemned ourselves by refusing his gift. The unmerited gift of salvation. It's not God's will that any should perish. He came to earth to save us. But if we reject him and refuse to accept his offer, we will be condemned. We will have condemned ourselves by refusing to heed the word of God. For I did not come on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus was the incarnate Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. That's what incarnate means. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was the word of God in flesh, the living expression of God's will and nature. And what he said were the words of God. He didn't speak on his own. 
He only said what the Father commanded him to say. He revealed the mind and will of God by what he did and by what he said. And we now have the words of God in print. So we are without excuse. We know what God wants us to do. Jesus lived it. He taught it. And it was recorded so we could read it. Now, it's up to us. It's up to us to act upon it. Jesus can do no more. He's done everything that can be done short of violating our free will. And he won't do that. He's not going to force us to accept his offer. But if we refuse it, we will be condemned. And it will be our fault. A little Q&A book on the Christian faith was written in the 1700s. And the final question was, what will happen to someone who disregards Christian truth? The answer given was condemnation. And the author then added, and so much the more because thou hast read this book. The answer was, of course, true and correct. The author, however, may have put a little more stock in his presentation of the truth than he should have. But Jesus presented the truth, the word of God, perfectly. By the life he lived and by the words he spoke. And the Holy Spirit made sure the record of his life and his words were perfectly preserved. They're in the book. We dare not disregard him or the light he brought to earth. To do so is to bring judgment upon ourselves by continuing to walk in darkness. The sunrise from on high has risen. He has risen indeed. The Son of God has done everything that was necessary to save you. Now it's up to you. Don't let Jesus' final words to the multitude. Be the last words you hear from a Savior. If you do, the next words you'll hear from Jesus will be words from a judge. A judge who will declare you condemned because you died in unbelief. You went to the grave at best, almost persuaded. Don't let that happen. Stand.